give me a mic, I can go on and on. <laughs> Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus and, and, and for the sacrifice that made us right with you. If, Father, is there someone here that hasn't experienced that? I pray that, that this morning, today, would be the time that their heart is touched to, uh, to come to you and accept that free gift, the good news of salvation through Jesus. Father, as we do this offering, I, I just pray that we give with glad hearts and, and uh, we're about ready to hear a sermon about, about that very thing. And uh, we're giving back to you what you have given to us. And I, I pray that we do that with uh, generosity and a happy heart. And, and once again, Father, pray, I pray for my brother Chad as he brings a message uh, again. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to have heard it. I'm glad to hear it again at second service. Bless him. Fill him with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The scariest experiences of my life that I wasn't directly involved in. Uh, but back when I was in college, some friends of mine and I, we decided to go camping. And we were camping down in the New River Gorge. You may uh, recognize this bridge. Uh, they, they dropped a truck off of it with a bungee cord attached to it for a Chevrolet commercial one time. But we were camping on, this, uh, on those cliffs you see over on the right side. And we were repelling, we were having a great time, and we were, uh, we were camping out, and it was pitch black. I mean, you really couldn't see anything. Now, I don't have um, a lot of courage when it comes to heights. As a matter of fact, it was everything I did, could do to repel off that cliff. It was the first time and last time I'd gone repelling it was when me and some guys went down off that, that cliff you see. But that night, as we were camping as we had our tents set up a group of teenagers came up and they were they were walking along those cliffs now it was pitch black and I knew they didn't know where the edge was and there was one young woman who was walking along and she slipped on the edge and half of her was dangling off that cliff now you can't tell it that's about a hundred foot drop uh, down to the bottom now, I just, it, it was horrifying. We were able to run over there. We were able to grab her hands. We were able to pull her back up on top of the cliff. But there she was, dangling over the darkness, pitch black, over cliff that I don't think she was even aware was that close to her. We as Americans have a similar experience every day living here, living out the American life. And there's something that's lurking right there in the darkness every single day. And without an awareness of it, without an awareness of this thing I'm talking about, it can infect us like a disease. And it's this thing called materialism. And I think that we as Americans are particularly susceptible to this disease. Now you can define materialism this way. A preoccupation with or stress upon material rather than intellectual or spiritual things. So it's this disease in which the stuff we have, the money we have, becomes more important to us than our pursuit of God. And this disease is so sneaky and it's tricky. And the symptoms of it can come in a number of different ways. 
The first thing it can do is it can turn you into a miser. It's where you take every penny and you're clinging to it with everything you have. It reminds me of this woman by the name of Hetty Green. You may or may not have heard of Hetty Green. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. And she passed away in 1916, but she was known as only possessing those clothes that you're seeing her in right now. And her, she wore her underclothes so they literally just rotted away. When her son was sick, he had to get his leg amputated because she refused to pay for the medical bill to get him the medicine he needed for it to get better. She never used heat and she never used hot water. And when she died, she left $200 million behind. And that was in 1916. So there's this kind of miserliness that materialism can bring. But not just miserliness, because we can also just fall in love with our stuff. And in 2003, in Southern California, when wildfires were sweeping through at this unprecedented speed, there was an article that appeared in USA Today about how the first responders and the firemen were begging people, you have got to just get in your cars and go. And yet there was a family that refused to heed this warning. And when those first responders got to their house after the fires had swept through, they found their bodies there, and they said the car looked like it was packed up to go on a trip. So there's this immediate danger that materialism can have. And then there's other dangers. There's more serious dangers. And Jesus warned us not only about the dangers of wealth in our lifetime, but also about the eternal dangers of wealth as well. In this passage that we're going to be looking at today, we see this warning from Christ. And he says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So the question is, well, how do we have stuff? How do we have a house or houses or a car or cars how can we have these things and not fall into this deceptive disease of materialism? The question we'll ponder today that we'll study, how do I gain an eternal perspective on wealth? And if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Matt, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10. We're at first going to look at verses 17 through 22. Mark 10, 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You may be seated. So we'll start this morning... Uh, first, we'll talk about these verses that we just went through. We're going to be looking at a lot of verses in this chapter, but we're going to look at three things 
in regard to wealth and in regard to possessions. First, we'll talk about the wrong idea about wealth and possessions. It has a lot to do with what we just read. And then we'll talk about the right idea, and then finally the eternal idea. It's the wrong idea, the right idea, and then finally the eternal idea. So let's then get into this, this passage. First of all, what is the wrong idea when it comes to our stuff and our possessions? And we see there in verse 17, this man that ran up to Jesus. And in other Gospels it says he was a young man, a young, rich, wealthy man. And the first thing that Jesus does after he asks Jesus a question is he asks a question in return. I want to pause for a second. These are hard verses. This is a hard passage. Yesterday, uh, I walked up into our living room, and Melissa was sitting there, and I flopped down on the couch, and I threw my head back, and I said, I may be the greediest person I know. It was convicting to go through this and to understand what it is that Christ is saying to us. And notice the first thing Jesus does is he asks this man a question in response. He said, why do you call me good? He says, there's no one good except God alone. Now, the man had already asked him a question, a great question. How do I inherit eternal life? What a wonderful question. And then Jesus asked him a question that he never gets an answer to. He's turning this idea of goodness on its head. And he says, you have to be good. If you want to be good, you've got to go way beyond any human effort to do so. If you think conventional wisdom is going to make you good, forget it. And then he hits him with a portion of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go to all the Ten Commandments. And it's very interesting what he does here. He says, do, do you know the Commandments? He said, don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And then he says, do not defraud. Now, if you've read through the Ten Commandments, you're not going to find one that says, do not defraud. Now, when you're God, you can change the Ten Commandments when you're talking. It's, it's his prerogative to do so. But if you're reading this, you'd hit a commandment that said, do not covet. Now, he knew that the issue this man had was not covetousness. People are coveting what this man has. However, he brought up this word defraud. That can mean to racketeer. In essence, he is treating his workers unfairly, and Jesus knew it. And as the Jewish audience around them would have heard Jesus said this, they would have immediately known what Jesus was talking about. Because the very wealthy and aristocratic crowd that this man would have been a part of was known to build their wealth on the backs of their, their peasant farmers, their workers. And they didn't treat them well. They taxed them unfairly. They demanded things of them monetarily. Uh, that brought great burden on the worker and great wealth to the person in charge. So Jesus knew, knew this. Uh, he, he knew what the man was up to. So then he asked him, he asked him about all these laws. And you can almost hear the excitement in the man's voice. Yes! I've kept all those since my youth. Check. I'm great. As a matter of fact, at this time, they also thought if you were wealthy, it's because you were being blessed by God. And this goes clear back to the book of Job. If you read the book of Job, you'll see that all of his friends thought he had everything taken away because of what? Because of his sin. 
Job, you've clearly done something wrong. That's why you've lost everything. So the corollary to that, well, if you're doing everything right, well, God's going to financially bless you. A lot of Americans think this way, too. That was the conventional wisdom of the time. But then Jesus turns it all on its head in verse 21. And he looked at them. And he loved them. And he said, you lack one thing. I'm sure he was eager to hear what it was until he actually heard what he was going to say. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. So what is it that this man is missing? It's one thing. Treasure in heaven. He's lacking this treasure in heaven. Now, what's, what's happening here? Is this, is this a command to you and I today to say that in order to go to heaven, you're going to sell everything that you have? Uh, is that what Mark is communicating to us? That if you've got stuff, then you better go sell it? No. No, I don't believe that's what Mark is saying at all. Mark is not arguing for a works-based salvation. As a matter of fact, if you look at the life of Peter and Andrew, you would know that they kept their, even when they dropped their nets and when Christ called them and said, I'm going to follow you, they kept their house. Uh, they used those as a base of operations. And they, were, they had a boat they were tooling around on all these lakes. So somebody kept their boat. They had a house. It wasn't about uh, dropping everything and embracing some kind of a monastic lifestyle, right? Becoming a monk. The core problem here is this disease we're talking about. This materialism. It's this dependence on wealth and possessions instead of dependence on God. I'd like for you to consider this quote for just a minute. It's by a guy by the name of Chrysostom. And he was around the 4th century uh, A.D. He was a, um, he was a church father. Uh, he was one of the theologians at the time. And in regard to money, he said this. He said, let us not blame the things, but the corrupt mind. For it is possible to be rich and not to be deceived, and to be in the world and not to be choked with its cares. They that are in sound health know that luxury pricks sharper than any thorn, and that luxury wastes the soul worse than care. Yea, it brings on premature old age, and dulls the senses, and darkens our reasoning, and blinds the keen-sighted mind, and makes the body flabby. So he's recognizing the dangers of materialism and wealth. And he's saying it's not that the thing in and of itself is bad. He said, let's don't blame the stuff. Let's blame the corrupt mind. One other quote. Uh, great, Mark common, great commentary on Mark written by a guy named R.T. France. And he said this along these same lines. He said, if we lose sight of the principle that affluence is a barrier to the kingdom of God, we are parting company from Jesus at a point which seems to have been fundamental to his teaching. It seems fundamental to the teaching of Christ that wealth, that possessions can be a barrier. And by the way, I've mentioned this statistic before. If you make $32,400 a year or more, you are in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. So keep that in mind as I'm talking about wealth and, and riches. 
There's so many warnings about money in the Bible, uh, what it can do to people if they love it. And I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that most of us really don't think we struggle with this. Uh, most of us think that greed is for those people that are way, way more wealthy than we are. Those are the people that, study with, that struggle with greed. And it's one of the hardest questions to answer is how do I know if this has become a barrier to me, if I've become greedy? You know, it's very easy when you look at those other, those other commandments. I know when I've stolen. I know when I've lied. You, you know when you've committed adultery, you know when you've done these things. Well, how do I know if I've become greedy and I've let it become a barrier to the kingdom of God? Because, you see, discipleship to Christ demands, it demands that you're not dependent on your cash. So a few questions to consider when we're diagnosing this problem of greed. One, am I willing to give up the status that my money gives me? Money will bring you status. It will bring you power. People will want to be around you if you are wealthy. It's just a fact. Do I feel superior or inferior to those who have more or less than I do? Um, if you resent someone because of what they are doing with their money or what they're able to get or, or whatever. Um, if you feel superior. You know, we've got classes, right? We've got poor people. Then we've got mid middle class people. We've got rich people. And in the middle, middle class, we've, we've divided up, right? We've got lower middle class and middle middle class and upper middle class. And then finally, do I need more money to feel important or safe? If I think if I just had a little bit more, people would really look up to me. I just need a little bit more in order to feel safe. I came across a story this past week of two young ladies that were wanting to become missionaries, and they went to their missions professor, and they, they told him about it. And then the, the missions professor said, that's great. Go and talk to your families. They go and talk to your families. They said, that's great, but here's what we need you to do before you decide to go out on the missions field. You need to have this degree, and you need to be making this money, and you need to have this security, and you need to have this locked away in the bank. So they took that information. They go to the missions professor with that, and he looked at them, and he paused, and he realized that their families wanted them to be secure. And he said, listen to me. He said, right now, you are in a little, on, a, on a little rock that is spinning. And it's only spinning because God is keeping it spinning. And someday there's going to be a trap door that opens underneath your feet. When you die, you're going to fall through that trap door and the only thing that's going to catch you or not catch you are the arms of the everlasting Father. He said, that is the only security that you have in this life. Now, I think it is good to plan for the future. I'm not going to say this, this means that it's a sin to have a 401k. That, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if you put all your security in that 401k that could be gone tomorrow, then you're missing it. You're missing the security that God would have you put in him and not in your finances. So these are, these are three questions to help us diagnose this problem of materialism. So the wrong idea is dependence on money or possessions to provide you with that which only God can provide. And hear me for just a moment. 
You see, all of those things, the status, the security, all of these things God provides us in the gospel. It's by us trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ, by him declaring us righteous, by being justified in the eyes of God. See, this is what gives you status. God tells you, you are made in my image. And if you've trusted in what Jesus has done for us and his death and his resurrection to save you from your sins, this is what, this is what makes you important. This is what tells us that I'm loved by God. It's because he was willing to come to earth and die for me. It's not what money provides me. It's not what power, it's not what anything in this earthly experience can give me that can provide me with the love and the safety and security that only God can. And I'm asking this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can do it right there where you're sitting. If you realize you're a sinner, that you're in need of forgiveness, if you understand that the work that Jesus Christ did on your behalf is what saves you, that's what makes you a Christian. By trusting in his death for your sins and his resurrection, that's what gives us status. So the wrong idea is dependence on possessions. Well, what's the right idea? Let's go back and look at verses 13 through 16. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we've got this scene where Jesus is he's traveling again to Jerusalem, and we're joining him in the journey. We're joining him in the journey to the cross, and parents are bringing their kids to him to be blessed by them. And then what happens? That yeah, These disciples, they still don't get it. Get these kids away from Jesus, would you? He's a busy man. They're, they're bothering him. So the disciples do this, and then what does it say in verse 14? He was indignant. Indignant is a nice word for, he was torqued at these guys. He was mad at these guys because he, they were chasing the kids away. And then he gives them a new command. He said, let them come to me. Don't try to stop them. He said, the kingdom of God is of, made of these. And whoever doesn't receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. Well, what does that mean? I want to tell you first what I don't believe it means. It doesn't mean that we stay sort of childish in our faith. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue God as his disciple and seek to know him more. It means we go through the discipleship process, learning about him, studying about him, and ultimately to love him more as a result. But what does it mean? And I think we can get some good clues if we just think about what happens at Christmas time for a minute. You know, at Christmas time, when somebody brings me a present, they walk up to me, they give it to me. My first feeling is sort of like this embarrassment because I know I didn't get them anything. So I'm standing there and I got this present. I'm kind of looking around, you know, I don't know, like looking at the shelves of the desk, like I'm just going to grab something and give it to them, like a present's just going to appear. I just, but it's not there. So what happens? Oh, man. The first thing I feel is regret. I didn't get you anything. I, maybe not. It must be in the... I didn't... Whatever. 
but you give a present to a child, and it is a totally different effect. That kid does not feel one ounce of remorse. <laughs> They're not worried about whether or not they got you something. They could care less. What do they do? They take it. They take it with a total trust in the person that gave it to them. They take it. They open it. You may get a thank you. You may not. But they really love this thing, whatever it was. This is how we receive the kingdom, with total trust that we can't give anything back to God who gave us this gift. This is receiving salvation like a child would receive a gift. This is how you take the gift. Um, by the way, there's something else very interesting that happens here. Because you see, when he's talking to these children about receiving the gift, he's using different language than he did with this other wealthy, wealthy young man. Uh, he talks about receiving with them, but he, to the young man, the rich young man, he says, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So, so what's the difference between receiving and entering? And I like what, this is a, a quote by Abraham Curavilla. He said, while entering it apparently refers to eternal destiny. Receiving it relates more to a person's attitude and response towards God's demands in this life. To receive the kingdom of God means to be God's willing subject, gladly embracing the radical values which Jesus has come to impress upon us. We are embracing radical values as disciples of Christ that run completely counter to the culture. That's what receiving the kingdom means. It means receiving everything that goes along with that, receiving the discipleship, receiving uh, the persecution, as you'll see in a moment. That's what a radical disciple of Jesus Christ does. So we receive this kingdom, and we don't just receive it in a moment. We receive the kingdom over the course of a lifetime, trusting Christ, living for him. So the children are the positive example in the story, totally dependent on God. And again, we see the disciples still don't get it. God is having to pull these grown-up values out of these disciples. And then I want to skip down to verses 23 through 27. We see the positive example um, regarding the right idea with the children. And then if we go down to verses 23 through 27, first in verse 22, you, receive the, you see the response of the young man. He's disheartened. Jesus said, go sell everything you have, and then come follow me. And then you see this corrective and this eternal viewpoint of wealth, starting in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, well, then who can be saved? And thank God for verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, what is Christ saying here? 
One, it's clear it is very hard for those whose material needs have been met, even to have been exceeded, to enter into God's kingdom. And he says it very plainly there in verse 25. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I've heard all kinds of explanations on this verse. There was, I've heard one that there was some kind of a gate around the wall of Jerusalem called the, the needle's eye or something like that. Well, this verse says exactly what it says. That it is impossible for someone to get into God's kingdom. That's what it's saying. It's impossible. He means exactly what he's saying here. And then the, que the, the, the question to the disciples is the perfect question. <laughs> well, who can be saved? And again, thank God for verse 27. If it were only dependent on man, nobody would be saved. Regardless of what your experience of salvation looked like, it was a miracle. You may have got up and walked down the aisle. You may have been driving your car down the road and and recalled the gospel message. However it looked, it took a miracle for you to be saved. It's not the material things in and of themselves that get us. It's the dependence on material things that are our downfall. And let's, let's look at it from this perspective for just a moment. If you believed that the only thing that really existed was what we can see with the naked eye. If you thought that the only thing that we knew existed was the material world around us, materialism makes perfect sense. I would never judge an unbeliever for being materialistic. Why would I do that? That's the best option. But then on top of that, if you believe that heaven in any way is going to be second rate compared to your life now, if you think it's going to be boring, if you're kind of like, I, I just, you know, sitting around, playing har sitting around playing harps is not what we'll do in heaven. But if that's the picture you have in your head, that it's going to be somehow inferior to your life now, you're also going to fall into this trap of materialism because you're going to want to bring heaven down right now. If you believe it's going to be a disappointment, you're going to want a better experience right here and now. So whether it's an unbeliever who believes this world is all there is or the believer who believes that uh, seven's going to be, heaven's going to be a second-rate experience. Both of those are susceptible to materialism. But see, as Christians, we don't believe this to be the case. If we could just experience five seconds of heaven, we would find our current earthly experience completely boring and pathetic. We walk by faith and not by sight. So material things can be nothing more than a distraction from being the kind of disciple that Jesus would have us to be. So the right idea is dependence on God. So what do we do then? What is this eternal perspective on wealth? And I want to go to verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, 
and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now the followers of Christ are being contrasted against what you saw in that rich man. The rich man goes away disheartened, clinging to his property. Not so with these followers of Christ. They're following Jesus and have abandoned everything. Now, this is not an easy set of verses, and they can be uh, very easily misunderstood. Now, Jesus is saying to them that by sacrificing now, not only will you be immeasurably rewarded, uh, rewarded in the, the life to come, but he's saying you're also going to be recompensed, you're going to be compensated for everything that you gave up right now. You're going to receive reward in heaven, but he's saying you're also going to become part of this community of believers here on earth right now. And through this community, you're going to gain everything that it was that you lost. And we see this start to play out in the book of Acts. So if we go to Acts 2 and look at verses 44 and 45... And the church had just started. The day of Pentecost had happened. These people are coming to faith. And it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we see it again in chapter 4. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, how these things play out in your own life, I think it's going to be different for all of us. And one thing I'll be very careful of, because this verse is the linchpin of something called prosperity theology. The idea that if I give a little money now, then I'll get exactly 100 times what I put in. Now, Jesus oftentimes employs what I'm going to call hyperbole when he speaks. And this is a dose of Hebrew hyperbole. In some places, he's going to say, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't think that if you put $100 in the offering plate, that you can expect $10,000 next week. That is not what he's saying here. Uh... It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have to sell everything you had. Again, Andrew and Peter did not sell their houses. That's why I'm saying it can work out differently in other people's lives. And what it does mean is by becoming a Christian, you become part of a community. A community that looks out for its own. And in that sense, you may gain houses and land and be financially taken care of as we as Christians are doing our part to be sacrificial in terms of the needs of our brothers and sisters. This is the eternal perspective of wealth, that we use it to bless the community. Um, so then what do we do with this? And point three is the eternal idea, give with eternity in mind. Now, this is going to look different for different people. I, I would suggest that this might mean, you know what, next year, next month, whatever, I may up my giving from what it currently is. Maybe maybe a dollar, maybe five dollars, maybe ten dollars, maybe a hundred dollars. It's between you and God, really. To some group doing the work of God, the, to helping the poor, to helping the church, to helping whomever. But it is about 
sacrificing what we currently have. As a matter of fact, when you look at it in terms of eternity, is it really even a sacrifice at all? This is all that God has given us, the resources that we have a short amount of time to use to his kingdom purposes. So for that, we give with eternity in mind. I want to close with this story. About a, it was about a NASA uh, job opening. They were looking for a planetary protection officer. True story. So NASA posted this job. They were looking for somebody who would be able to to determine what kind of impact might we have on planets as we go and we explore these planets. And they want to know what kind of a microbial footprint we would leave on other planets. So they put this job offering out there, and you've got to like have a PhD in physics and math and, and all these different things, but that didn't stop one young man named Jack Davis from applying to this job. And here he is. <laughs> Sign me up. And he wrote a letter. He wanted this job. He said, I may be nine, but I think I'd be a good fit for the job. One of the reasons is my sister says that I'm an alien. <laughs> also, I've seen almost all space movies and alien movies that I can see. He then cited plans to watch Men in Black as further training for this position. He says, I am young, so I can learn to think like an alien. He concluded. And although he did not get this job, which is kind of unfortunate, I think he would have been great at this, where he knows as much as anybody, NASA responded to him and said, we are always looking for bright future scientists. So I hope that you will study hard and do well in school. We hope to see you here at NASA one of these days. You know, the idea, the idea that God needs us to keep his kingdom going is kind of like the idea that NASA needs this nine-year-old as their planetary protection officer. See, it's not because God needs us or needs our money or needs his, our, our stuff that his kingdom is going to keep going. It's in his love and grace towards us that he allows us to be part of his kingdom purposes. He lets us use our stuff so that we can be part of his plan. And I pray that we'll all have this childlike faith to pursue his kingdom eagerly and faithfully. Please pray with me. God, you are almighty and you are all powerful. And it's in our pride and arrogance that we would ever think that you need us. Lord, I pray that we would always have this attitude that we get to be used by you, that we get to use the resources that you have given us for your kingdom purposes. Lord, give us wisdom to know how you would have us to spend our money, that we would think about how we're spending our money, that we would ask ourselves, am I being greedy, and work through tough questions. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've given us. And Lord, I, I thank you for putting me here in a very generous church, in a very generous community. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And we have a quick announcement regarding